and we have a special guest, uh, which is Kaylee McMahon. Uh, again, a little bit of bio of her and uh, the background, what she does and the things that we're going to be covering. This is all multifamily investing real estate episode for you. So if you're interested into, into that, make sure to stick in and, and keep watching. But first of all, uh, nickname Department Queen. You can find her on thepartmentqueen.com on the website. Uh, she's the founder of The Apartment Queen, founder of uh, Read by Kaylee LLC, residential real estate brokerage. Um, she's a general partner, key principal in $45 million assets under management in Texas, uh, $17.1 million uh, assets under management in Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, everything is listed here. Uh, bachelor's degree in molecular, molecular and experimental nutrition, uh, Texas A. A&M University, uh, license, <laughs> licensed real estate broker in the state of Texas, three years. Uh, so she's uh, purchased $68.2 million in multifamily real estate as a general partner and key principal, sold over $3 million of residential real estate before transitioning into her full-time syndication role. Uh, what else here to mention? Kaylee has done home flippings, uh, that stuff. So, I mean, there's a lot and it continues. So we're going to include, as I mentioned to, to Kayleen before, uh, everything is down below and the description. So you have to check it out and read through, uh, well, one thing that I want to mention, we will create 1 billion, uh, more female investors and givers. So that's one of her goals, which of course we're going to discuss in the show also, but first things first, I just want to say a big thank you today for being on the show. You're welcome. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So thank you. Thank you. So listen, um, where do we start? I mean, there's a lot of different things that we have here going on. So but first of all, let's kind of go back to the beginning and, and maybe discuss uh, your journey and your, your transition journey. And how did you find the real estate investing? By accident. Okay. That's, <laughs> a, that's a quick answer. Can, can you go? Can you expand on that? Sure. Um, I think... I'm not alone in this, but growing up with a family that doesn't have any experience in real estate, the way that you understand what investing is, is in the stock market, which at this point, I really think it's legalized gambling. But uh, at that time when I was younger and um, being taught a few things, uh, I had an adoptive father who would kind of play in the stock market during the day, but never explained anything to me. So I didn't really understand how it works. So I kind of put investing into a box. Um, lived my life trying to kind of figure out what I'm about, who I am, what I enjoy doing. And I've done a little bit of a lot of different things to try out sales. I've fixed computers, you know, as you can see from my resume, just in real estate alone, there's been a few different things I've done from um, passive note investing, flipping houses actively to, you know, apartments and other things in between. So it was by accident. I had a personal concierge business after I was tired of working for a manager who didn't understand um, how people work. You have to um, take care of the people that work with you. And uh, if not, they're going to go away because uh, those skills are not easy to come by. And I'm probably the, the ultimate salesperson that anyone could, could have. So I, I like to self-teach, um, et cetera. So um, realizing that I would want to be a better boss myself, I knew I couldn't work for somebody. So I started a concierge business. And to speed it up, the concierge business was working with wealthy people in Dallas, Fort Worth, and basically managing all of their homes, parties, 
bills, I mean, all the moving parts uh, that have to do with um, being efficient, making a system outside of their work life. So um, this was something I didn't understand in a business model or how a business model worked that you have to scale at some point. So a friend of mine said, great idea, great logo, good concept, it's working. But right now, if you've ever read the Rich Dad, Poor Dad series, the first book, uh, well, not Rich Dad, yep, Rich Dad series, the first book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, they talk about um, the E, S, B, and I quadrants. So at that time, I was not an employee, uh, but I was self-employed in S. So if you didn't bring in the anything, you didn't eat, you know what I mean? And at a certain point, you run out of time. So I was kind of to that point where it was, it was working and moving. And it was at the time, looking back at myself, I wish I understood how seed capital worked. I wish I understood how um, putting together uh, projections and pitch decks for performance. If I were to have capital, what would happen? I know how to do all that now, but at the time I didn't because I didn't have a business degree and didn't really know the right people. So a friend of mine said, well, why don't you, instead of taking out a business loan to fund this system that's working to scale it, why don't you just get into real estate and then sell four or five houses a year, take that capital, put it into the business for systems, advertising, people, you know, kind of what you need to scale. So that's kind of what got me into real estate. And I was kind of resistant to it at first, to tell you the truth, because like I said, I'm good at sales, but when I think of real estate, I was thinking of just realtors. I didn't understand that there was a whole world of investing and so many different niches under that umbrella that were in real estate. So once I learned what was available, I kind of got hooked. Okay, got it, got it. So that's an interesting kind of transition from, again, as I mentioned, servicing kind of wealthy people taking care of, of their parties and all these bills and you know all that stuff and kind of moving into real estate uh which as you mentioned happens by accident uh so can you talk about your kind of first deals was it the first that you got involved with the flipping or you became a broker which i guess it was the kind of flipping part that you got involved first right inverse uh involved with investing or involved with real estate Say that again. Just, just real estate in general yeah the first thing i mean i got a license so i mean because most people think that that's where you have to start not the case um but you think that you have access to certain things um, and you do, but for the amount of schooling and, and legal uh, burden that you have to carry and continue to carry over time, it's, um, it's, we could get into a whole other podcast on that, but that's what I did. Uh, and when I got into that, I also, because all they do is scare the absolute living crap out of you in those 180 hours of schooling, how to not get your broker sued. That's literally all they're teaching you. They're not teaching you um, how to run comps on properties, like how to even have like basic knowledge uh, or skills as a real estate agent. So um, at the time when I was doing that, I go, okay, well, let's just do leases because that kind of takes away the liability of doing contracts. Like, um, well, not like uh, the contracts when you're doing leasing, you can lease single family homes or you can lease apartments. When you are a broker, or sorry, not broker, when you are a real estate agent in Texas, um, you have to actually be a licensed agent to be able to place people in apartments. So it's called an apartment locator. Some states like Colorado, they don't make you do that. You can just be an individual getting, getting essentially a referral fee from the property, but um, here, that's just how it works. So that's what I did at first. And again, you don't have to write any contracts up. The only thing that you're doing is basically helping people uh, narrow down what they want using a, um, 
apartment MLS, if you will, that that, that is, uh, exists out there. And then um, some of the times I've, I'm actually, I do it now sometimes, but I can do it from wherever I am because I realize how to do it. It's that you, you never have to be there. The people literally show themselves and then you get paid. So um, why not, right? But uh, that was how I started was in leasing and uh, being around apartments, but not being on the investor side or being a, being a principal. Okay, got it. And you mentioned another thing that I would like to kind of talk about, talk about a little bit. Again, is one of those skills uh, which a lot of people should be thinking about acquiring, which is sales. So can you talk about, because again, what you, what you mentioned before, you said I'm great at sales. So can you, can you just talk about like what makes a person to be great at sales? How do you acquire those, that trait? Um, is, is there a course, is there a training, like some sort of, and how does that help you uh, to build your real estate business? I mean, it's really simple. I, I used to be in sales and be okay at it. And now I can close anything. Um, part of it being a female uh, is subconscious where we don't feel very comfortable negotiating. And I could go into that for forever, but everything is a negotiation. I mean, that's really just accept that, you know what I mean? And someone that is in sales, the reason they would be good at sales, um, I don't want to limit it to just like a sales position because I mean, even when I'm doing an offering, I'm still selling the deal. I'm still saying, look, I'm confident in the deal. I have my money in it. Look, I've done this in the past. So you're, you're selling your team, you're selling yourself, you're selling your track record, uh, you're selling the actual physical building itself, what it's going to do for other people. So when you're spewing uh, features and benefits uh, in any kind of sales, that's not the way to do it, or at least not the way to start. If someone asks you for that, sure, let them know. But really, everyone is on WIIFM, I think is how you say it. Like, what's in it for me? FM. That's the frequency everyone's tuned into. So all they are listening for, and they can only pay attention for three minutes at a time, is what am I getting out of this? So if you can um, listen and having a conversation where you're either meeting with somebody or somebody you're passing by, whatever it is, you get them to talk more than you talk. And all you're trying to do is say, if they talk about their dog, right? You don't go, oh, I have a dog too. And try to chime in and try to, um, I don't know what the word is, but be communal and add to the conversation. Uh, instead, you need to listen. And so saying, oh, well, how old is the dog? Or where did you get the dog from? Or something like that. And what will end up happening is eventually, if you keep getting that person to talk about whatever is going on with them, at some level, we all have some stress or we have something that's bothering us or keeping us up at night. Don't ever ask that, by the way. The people that go, what? Like, what's keeping you up at night? Don't ask that. It's too salesy. Um, but you're just getting the person to talk and eventually they will tell you some problems. And then if you have a solution that will fix those problems, wonderful. Offer the solution. Here's, here's what I can do to help you. And so it's coming from a place of help and giving, not taking. And if it doesn't, something doesn't sound good to them, let it go. No big deal. Uh, but usually people want help. Um, so, and even if it's not your solution and there's, you know, I'm always connecting people that maybe have a better solution or get them what they need. Um, yeah. So pretty much it's just getting someone to talk, talk about their problems and then seeing if, if you have a solution for them. Um, and some of the times, even with a conversation, you don't need to close people ever. Like I, I don't ever have that in mind where at the end of the meeting you, you have to have, like that's something that actually people preach a lot in, in sales stuff. Cause I have taken some sales trainings and books and stuff and it's kind of crap, to tell you the truth. Uh, you don't need to close anyone ever. Like they've sat there and hopefully talked for about an hour 
about themselves. So at the end of that meeting, they're going to be like, oh my gosh, this person's amazing. I really like Kaylee because she understands me because you let them get all the stuff off their chest that nobody else wants to listen to or has listened to. Um, so being like that to somebody makes them feel really good about being around you. So they're likely going to engage you again just because of that meeting that they had. And so that's the great part about being a good salesperson is that you have people engaging you. You're not fishing. They're coming to you because you listen and you give a, you give a crap, you know? So whether you have a solution today, you might tomorrow, but I guess that's the best advice I've got. Got it. So, so you, you won't lean on a person if, if you see that the actual deal is, is or potential property that you, that you're looking to acquire is not going to solve their problem. Would you be willing to lean on them and kind of, you know, like, you know, just, uh, cause sometimes people need to need to need that. Right. Cause somebody just, not able to make the decision until somebody kind of just leans on them and pushes them a little bit. So would you do that to the people kind of, you know, encourage them or is there, you know, some sort of a strategies that you use beside, you know, listening, like that, that will actually help you to get the deal done? Saying no. Saying no as often as possible in the realm of what I do, rich people don't like them told no. So if you find that you're dealing with a wealthy person and for me, I'm trying to ask them if they're, you know, not sure every email or interaction that I have is saying, okay, I'm going to answer a question that you have. Uh, what is your level of interest? Uh, that that's when it comes to raising money specifically, not when it comes to pitching the property on a slide deck or um, in a webinar, those are just different things. But uh, when you're interacting with somebody who's already looked at your information, already decided, Hey, I'm interested. And then there's a couple, like probably three layers of, you know, next steps. And so uh, we, they get the instruction after the webinar. They're already obviously interested period because they came to the webinar. You know, there's some instructions at the end of how to go review documents, how to go look at the actual offering on your own time. Uh, what our time frame and timeline looks like, uh, what the investment is limited to, uh, what criteria that that individual has to meet before they qualify to invest. So again, it's just the no, 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 no. It's limiting down who can even have access to it. And again, um, adding a little bit of FOMO, I guess, to, the, to a presentation saying there's 100 spots, which is a fact, right? You're just, there's certain information that you can choose to talk about and not talk about, but creating demand, like that's why I've been really good at uh, moving residential home sales is because I can figure out a way to go, okay, here's a tip, for example, like, I don't know why people do this. You don't want to be available for everybody all the freaking time. You know, you only have so much energy. Hopefully you have a family, you have a life, things like that. And it's important to only work with people that want to see your life get better. So they really need to understand and respect your time. So, you know, somebody that, um, for what I was going to say, uh, somebody that, what did I just say? So the, look, the, the question there was like the thing that I want to kind of put out there because I came across this thing oh, and I think, I, I think it's a little bit funny because what, what you mentioned when it comes to the limited, you know, seats and such, because what, what prior to the COVID, you know, people used to come, you know, in this open, open events, you know, meetups. And so, you know, in, in place where you have like really like limited space and it could be like 50 chairs only. But when it comes to like internet, I seen uh, somebody just put out like it's a webinar and it's limited space like man it's it's on internet what are you talking about it's limited you know but what you're saying is like giving them all these questions and making exclusive you know for for those kind of people so so it, it does make sense 
So. I guess that's where I was getting to. Yeah. Uh, telling people no, basically. And then, then they can never, ever, ever come back to you and say like, well, I didn't for sure want to do this or have buyer's remorse or anything. I'm basically reconfirming several times that like, Hey, this is limited. Hey, this is the type of criteria you have to meet to qualify. Hey, like, so, you know, and for example, when people are getting down to that, okay, I'm interested. Like I'll say, what's your level of interest? I'm interested. Okay. Well, what questions do you have? Then they'll have some questions. Then I'll answer them. What level of interest do you have? And then I keep, that's my push is just getting them to answer questions. If you end your emails or conversations with a question, that's, it's not a closing, but it's just moving that person closer to making a decision. Yes or no. And I don't even care if it's no. And that would be one of the biggest tips that I have, I guess, when it comes to sales is if you have um, another source of income. So for example, when I'm doing these deals, I still do have a real estate brokerage because um, I'm able to still make income through that. And then I have another company coming out next year, but you know, these other sources of income basically that, um, either self-run themselves, they're semi-passive, which is great. Um, that's why I also invest myself as well. Um, but that makes you never desperate. So when somebody isn't interacting with you, there's no reason to push. And when you do push, it, it turns somebody off. And just that alone, even if they want it and they're interested and they need it, they're still going to go away because they need to know that they made the decision to do it. Got it, got it. And depending on the countries, because like myself, personal life is that issue, you know, sometimes depending on the countries that people are from, uh, when it comes to the time frame, somebody can take a little bit longer time, shorter period of time. So it depends, you know, to where actually people are from, you know, because that influences a lot. Because somebody like from my country, they, be, they, they might be thinking about something that's, you know, kind of hard decision for, you know, hours and somebody else could be thinking for days or maybe weeks. So we have to kind of know the, the demographic of people also, I think. You kind of don't, because like I mentioned, if you make that clear up front, here's the limitations. If they can't do it, they're going to go away. And I don't need to yeah. deal with people that can't make up their mind. Um, if they can make up their mind in a reasonable time, like if they're thinking for hours, that's cool. I don't care. Yeah. You think for a week, but you may miss out and your spot may go away. And again, I'm not chasing you. They're chasing me. So uh, it just is being well, upfront. That the specific example is, is based on our, on this kind of webinar, you know, piece, but th there's different, like if we're talking about different business aspects, when it comes to buying or closing, you probably heard the stories where people like keep following up with the property owners for months or maybe you know, like years until they buy, you know, some deals. Cause they, those people keep thinking about selling the properties for whatever reason, but they just extend the time frame. And again, that that's the people, you know, that, that's what they do sometimes. Like one thing that I wanted to talk about is um, like sales. I mean, it's a great piece and uh, it, it's very valuable to have those type of skills. One of the things is like just being certain. I don't know if it helped for you, but like in my own personal background, like if you're just certain about a product or, you know, service or property or whatever you're selling, if the person, the one who is certain about their product service is going to influence other person, which is not certain. So if your level of certainty is higher than the other person, I think that that will help you a lot at the same time, because everybody's uncertain during these times. So somebody has to be certain, you know? Yeah. Self-confidence helps everything. Yeah, definitely. So talking about it the wins first... in, uh, relationships, it wins in business. It's, it's a good quality to have and yeah. don't be fake with it. Like for example, when I said earlier, Hey, I've got my own money in it. I've got skin in the game. I believe in the, in the numbers and the deals or in the deal itself, because I want to make the returns myself. So, I mean, that also really helps having some social proof. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Definitely, definitely agree. Can you talk about the first uh, multifamily deal, kind of your experience in it? I mean, and just a little bit, if you run the numbers, location, number of units, all the, all the good stuff. Sure. I'm not going to disclose the location because Texas is a non-disclosure state. So I can tell you we bought it for a million bucks. It was 18 units. It was in South Dallas. Um, it was a property that had Section 8, but it was not being renewed, which is why we went for it. Uh, that property uh, was the first one that I learned on. So it was one where, you know, you have um, your prostitution rampant, you have some drug dealing, you have um, it's, it's, we do C-class workforce housing. So, but again, where it was in South Dallas, it was kind of on the edge of the ghetto. So um, super long story short, waited for the Section 8 to not renew and then uh, started bumping rents slightly. And then so people started leaving. So that gives us the opportunity to get in there and to flip the units and make them much nicer, which the budget's already planned for in the loan for that purpose. Uh, then doing a lot of capital expenditures on the exterior of the building. I have a breakdown in a notepad. I don't have the exact, you know, I think we put like a grill, a pergola, like the normal stuff we kind of do, a park bench, uh, certain things for the amenities. And uh, then basically once all the bad non-paying tenants were out and Section 8 had not renewed, then we have good paying tenants at a higher rental rate. And uh, based on the compressed cap rate, uh, within 13 months, we sold it for $1.8 million dollars. Got it. So do you look at, at this current moment, what do you have going in the pipeline? Do you look at any kind of distressed, those type of properties for now? Depends on what you consider distress. So uh, usually well, when ghetto, you're looking at- Like ghetto and all the like drug dealers and prostitution sounds a little bit distressed. Well, not, it's on the edge. So yeah. uh, it depends on the class of the building, which is usually decided by the vintage of the property, the deferred maintenance. And again, deferred maintenance is kind of part of that, like- tenant mix who's who's there and what are they doing to the property because they're going to degrade it faster if they're like it's a bad tenant mix so what we do is c-class housing so i like c minus c plus class and then we'll renovate it to the next class up but again a distressed deal would be for me something that's a d-class something that is um so deferred in the maintenance that like you'd literally just need to bulldoze the damn building um there's no point in, it's, it's bad on the inside and bad on the outside. And then in addition to that, usually D-class are in a neighborhood where, I mean, you're surrounded by, you know, crime, prostitution, things like that. And if you're surrounded by it, you can't get out of it. So a C-class property that is not quite distressed, but it's on the edge, um, just the other uh, owner wasn't taking care of it or upgrading it or running it like a business like they could have. But for example, we have a deal in Phoenix that is um, on Indian School Road. It's north of that road. South of that road is the ghetto, I would call it. So we'll do it on the edge so you get a decent price. And again, we're part of that gentrification of moving it down, uh, like basically taking over the bad parts, um, but not when you're surrounded by it. So I guess that's what I mean. Uh, we'll do C-class deals that are kind of, like I said, on the edge of um, being distressed, but not fully distressed deals. But then again, I've done some C-class deals um, in West Texas that they, based on their year build and their vintage, they were C-class, but I mean, the owner took really good care of them where the roof was new, the foundation was good, the HVACs were all individual and new, um, you know, the plumbing was taken care of. So all we really had to do was just put, uh, just flip the units and be able to increase them quite a bit very quickly. Got it, got it. So the question that pops in my head, how do you know if the ghetto and the bad area is not going to start moving in to your part of the area? Because you kind of said if you're kind of standing on the edge. Like, so what, what type of, what type of statistics that like, what type of data are you looking at to make sure that you're making those quality decisions? 
Yeah, so there are handfuls of different data out there that you can gather, and this is kind of just playing along with crime. That's really one of the most important things to look at, like we're vetting a market uh, to either move into or a new area. It's like a five-prong approach, and there are two different tabs to this spreadsheet I'm thinking of in my head, and one is um, at zip code level, and then the other is at subdivision level. Uh, so at zip code level, when you're looking at it, there's... Um, city-data.com, uh, bestplaces.org, and those are two places where it's the um, bestplaces.org will give you a map where you can kind of look at a scale of like how heavy the murders are there or like the, the crime rate and it'll like literally go from light like pink and white all the way up to like really red for that zip code area. Um, and then city-data uses a 10 year long data frame. So it's usually census to census um, using, okay, uh, or not using, but going year to year saying, okay, so what you want to see is what I'm trying to describe is that over a 10 year period of time, the number that you're looking on city dash data under the crime, un under the, the total, the number needs to be under 500. And that's like 500 murders per square mile, I believe. Uh, and then over the last 10 years, the Delta or the change from 10 years prior to now to now, you want to see that number going down steadily over time. So we definitely look at that, look at that. And then um, those things, like I said, are based on the census. So if you want something a little bit more up to date, uh, Texas A&M has a real estate center. And if you go on their website, they have a pretty up to date um, same thing, market analysis with, with crime. Um, so the five prongs are, we're going to look at crime level, income growth, uh, median house value growth, um, job growth, and um, let's see, um, job growth, pop population growth, job growth, crime decrease, um, median house value, and, and median income, I, th I think is you know, the houses, the income, the crime, like all those five things. And the biggest, most important thing to me would be the crime um, and the job growth. Um, so where are those trending? Um, so that's really what we look at before we're looking at a market like at a zip code level. Second tab is looking at um, everything from uh, the demographics of the, the individuals that live in that subdivision or that really close area that you're looking at. Um, i trying to remember all those things, but looking at... Um, looking at their demographics, the uh, unemployment rate, the um, salary increase, and, and a couple of other things. So we really drill down. Um, once we've decided that that market is good, then we drill down to the area to decide if we want to invest in that property. Got it. Got it. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. It's a, it's a great tips for the people who are looking to, for, for those, uh, uh, for those type of tips. Uh, one thing that I wanted to ask, do you have a in-house property management or you have a third party one? Third party. Third party. Okay. So can you talk about the process? As you mentioned, if you're looking for those type of deals and it, it could be on an edge on those type of rough areas. So can you talk about your leasing uh, process and, you know, the way you kind of getting the, you know, making sure that you're screening tenants the right way and maybe the process itself, how do you find those qualified people to, to rent, uh, you know, apartments from you? Yeah, so that would be a really good question for a property manager. That's not what I do. Um, so obviously at a high level, I make the rules as far as what we will not do. Uh, so I mean, I can share like two things, but other than that, I just, I mean, I leave it to the professionals and let them do their job. So as far as being a little bit lenient with, uh, depending on the area also, like if it's Dallas versus West Texas, it's very different people. So um, 
I understand as an individual that people get divorced, that people um, get sued, that people go through life, you know what I mean? And so maybe their credit doesn't look that great. Uh, so what we will do that's a little bit over the top, normally what we do is use a, a service that runs their credit, rental history um, and crime, or um, I guess criminal background on that person. Um, and I guess one area that we will make exceptions on is the, um, is the credit score, um, because if they've been making their housing payments uh, religiously over time and they just went through some stuff, like, I get it, you know, it's a, and it actually ends up being um, a situation where a lot of people are really grateful. Everyone needs somewhere to live. And so if, if you know, if they've been paying their housing, I don't mind having them live, live with us. So we may ask for an extra deposit, but we wouldn't ask for it all up front. I would ask for like a little bit over time so that they'd be able to at least move in and you know, I've been through stuff where you just need to get away and get out. So I get it. Okay. I guess that, that's the only thing. And then we've had a situation where we had a patient that had cancer. And those those situations are tough because that, again, those um, final decisions go, go back to me. And uh, I was able in this certain situation, I'm thinking of to come up with a pretty creative solution. You can't always do this. And um, I normally don't like employees to live on site because if they're maintenance, for example, they'll never have family time. They'll never be left alone. Uh, they may charge overtime for things that they don't need to be doing. Uh, they may get into a relationship with somebody else on the property. And then we have a, an issue where we have a lawsuit and all kinds of stuff. So normally that's not the case, but in this situation, um, she needed to stay home with her son like physically on site. So for her to be able to not have to move out and not have to, um, so basically what we did was we employed her. So we had her go around and uh, check all of the uh, property um, landscaping jobs that were being done and making sure that we we're getting photos of what was being done, what was not being done. She would pick up trash. Um, she would help assist with uh, lawn maintenance sometimes. Anyway, just little little tasks here and there that would amount to about $200 a month. And that's really all she needed to be, be taken off of her rent to be able to have it affordable. Um, so in the way that we bill it, obviously, is that she is paying. So the market rent for that apartment is not less. It's where it should be. Um, but like I said, we're compensating because she's she's working for us. So I mean, that was a tough decision, but she, her name was Miranda and she actually came to me and said, you know, thank you so much because um, we thought we were going to have to leave. And our cancer center for our son is 40 minutes from here. That's why we moved out here. Um, so some of that stuff is is cool and gratifying, but as far as like uh, tenant screening, we, we use a service and I, I leave the rest of it up to the property manager. Got it, got it. That's no problem. So good for you. I mean, making those type of decisions for the people that uh, you need to make. So that's awesome. So uh, talking about the states itself, you're investing in uh, Texas and Arizona. There's only two states? Right now, yes. Okay. So can you talk about the decisions, of course, why you decided to invest in those states? Well, I understand that you live in Texas, but why mm -hmm. Arizona? Um, so I'm also looking at Florida right now as well. I'm just trying to figure out, uh, because everything's kind of overpriced, but now things because of COVID are becoming a little bit different. Uh, and I don't have a fear mindset, so I don't mind moving forward with things that I have the entire time. I continue to put in offers. I'm like, I'm full steam ahead. I'm not stopping. Uh, but all those states and actually Georgia is kind of on my radar. I've got a partner that I'm letting them teach me everything. I'm not putting out effort to go, you know, meet brokers and fly out there. And I mean, I did that before you just get sick and tired. Um, you just got to have a local boots on the ground person, but uh, all those States are the same where they're conservative. So they're all landlord friendly. They're all business friendly and they're all tax friendly. So I have this fly. 
right now. Um, so whenever you're um, trying to evict people, I mean, I've got friends that own in New York and friends that own in California and friends that own in Seattle and they can't freaking get rid of people, you know? And uh, even with the uh, moratoriums on rent and not being able to uh, evict people, we're just, we lean more towards being landlord friendly. So for example, we had somebody who wasn't paying before COVID and uh, we went to the local judge and we said, Hey, like th this is not a COVID related thing. He's just trying to burn the system, you know? And the judge was like, well, we're not having that. And so we went through with proceedings. Um, and a lot of States, like, you know, I, I was born in Washington and I was just up there um, not too long ago in Seattle. There, there, there are a lot of people that are kind of milking the system, you know, and that's just, in, in a conservative place, it's not acceptable. So, mm -hmm. got it, got it. So, what type of deals are you looking for in those states, as, as I mentioned, in, in uh, you know, in, in Georgia and, you know, like Arizona? Well, can you talk about the deal criteria, like the size of a unit? And of course, we talked about location, like how big are the properties should be? Yeah, I mean, typically, but again, there's always, um, there's always exceptions. Um, like for example, right now there's one in a suburb of, T of Dallas right now that's a really like not hot suburb, but I mean, there's a lot there. I mean, it's, it's a big growing place. So it's a property that has been untouched. So for us or for me, my biggest successes have been on deals where um, we have put in the criteria 70% plus of the units have been unrenovated or are classic. Um, so on this one, 100% are. So it's a smaller deal. It's only 45 units. And normally I would say 60 plus is where we start. Um, but on this one, because it's, you know, a virgin property, there's a ton of value to be sucked out of it. And it's, you know, two owners that are in their seventies. So they haven't run it like a business. There's a, a lot of operational plays we can do there as well. So there's always exceptions, but typically 60 units plus, because at that point you can have a full-time maintenance personnel on, on campus or on property. Um, you can have a full-time manager as well. Um, and then, so you're able to then scale and go find other properties and not have to constantly be coordinating things, you know? Um, so 70% plus classic is one of the criteria, 60 plus units, uh, C minus to B minus deals. Um, we look for DFW or basically any of the major MSAs or Metro statistical areas in Texas, uh, as well as Phoenix. Uh, I would even do Scottsdale. Uh, like I said, we're looking in Florida, like Jacksonville's awesome. Um, and some other areas, Tampa, but it's too overpriced. Um, so kind of these certain markets and then, um, if I could prefer pick my preferred, this is not like a do or die criteria, but a preferred criteria would be pitched roofs and uh, no chiller um, or a brand new chiller. So those things are like 150 grand a pop um, new to replace. So if it goes out, you got to replace the whole thing uh, plus, plus the piping. Um, so th I think that's the, that's the main uh, stuff. Yeah. That we look for. Um, yeah. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. You mentioned one thing that I think it's very important to, you know, to the scaling business part, which again is, is the partnerships, as you mentioned, the, the person in Georgia that will help you to acquire those type of deals. So can you talk about maybe the process and give some tips? How do you find those quality partners? <laughs> Lucky. <laughs> I mean, there's no process. Uh, the, the best you could do is get yourself out there. You know what I mean? And you know, figure out internally who you are, what your ethics and values and what, who, who are you? What do you stand for in your community? And then say that out loud all the freaking time. And then you'll attract the people that are also in agreement with that person and, and know them, kind of know them well. Don't, don't meet someone one time and do a deal with them. That's not a good idea. Um, but, you know, it's, it's just trying to find people that are also in agreement with, with who you are. You know, like for me, 
Um, I fight for justice. So I, I understand that people make mistakes. I understand that life happens, whatever. There's no reason to crucify somebody because life happens or they make a mistake, but trying to um, work through something with somebody. And then at the end of the day, uh, for me, justice is what matters. So if there's any kind of bullying, um, abuse, um, people that are really litigious, you know, they kind of in my head fall in line with with abusive people because like they they just can't communicate on their own. So they decided to try to intimidate somebody uh, to squeeze money out of them. You know what I mean? And I just don't, I don't do that. So when it comes to fighting for the right thing, I mean, I'll do that all day. So under individuals that I've had soulmate partnerships with, for me, stand for the same thing. And I've literally seen them and they don't just say it. I've seen them when we've gotten into tough situations, they're there. They've got my back. I've got their back and we just fight for what's right, you know, and not like what's right for my friend. Cause I like my friend, but let's do the right thing. And, and they don't mind. And same here, admitting when you're wrong um, and saying, look, I screwed up. Let's fix it. So I just say it out loud. And then the people that don't like that, they don't keep talking to me. <laughs> Simple as that, right? Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. So talking about, uh, again, talking about scaling the business currently purchased as a C68.2 million dollars and currently so you manage 45 million. Uh, that's total. So like, well, what do you what do you what do you have currently, as I mentioned in the pipeline, how how many more properties are you looking for uh, acquired this year? Mm, this year, so I've got a deal under contract right now. I don't know when you're going to publish this, but um... That one we went under contract on, I think on the 17th of September. Uh, and these deals take a minimum of three months to close. So um, again, working on the uh, pipeline because there's a lot that we're doing right now, but I have other partners that, you know, they have to execute their part of it. Um, and then we'll have to start the raise and all that stuff. But um, and all the conversations, all the investors, but right now, I would like to get one more deal before the end of the year. So somewhere between you know 100 units plus would be ideal. Um, I've got a teammate who is just like a total baller when it comes to her raising money. I mean, she moved to France because she's like, I don't, I don't need to be anywhere to do this. Like, I just need to have consult uh, consultations on my computer with people. So um, she's like, go find us something that's over 100 units and that meets my criteria because we're pretty pretty conservative when it comes to what we're looking for. Um, my investors are kind of spoiled. And so I can't, I can't be going, yeah, let's do like 7% return. They, they would not invest, you know? So, um, I haven't been able to put a deal by myself under contract for a year. Those first two, uh, that I did by myself, like, well, not a hundred percent by myself. Obviously we have passive investors and whatnot, but I'm the lead on those. And then it took a, almost a full calendar year to put this new one in Fort Worth under contract, but it is in the city, which makes me happy. And uh, it's a B plus, A minus area. So it's a much nicer area than the deal itself. So it's a, it's a good one. Um, but yeah, one more would be ideal before the end of the year. So um, I'm going on tours, meeting with brokers constantly um, to, to get that done. Got it, got it. Okay, so uh, the question that I have, again, I know that uh, it's, it's part of it is luck, part of it is sales, and part of it is probably it's not your business and maybe that's not what you do. As you mentioned, you have a friend who, who is in, in France at the moment and that's what she does. But maybe you can kind of give a few tips when it comes to raising capital process. Yeah, I mean, I'll just give you what works. How about that? Like, I'll just tell you, um, because I am really good at raising capital, but I don't like she does only that. Um, 
in a partnership. I mean, she legally, she has to help us with some other stuff. So she'll help us put together the slide deck. She continues to stay involved in our phone calls, you know, but as far as like talking to property managers, managing the manager, which is what the asset manager normally is what I do, um, as far as hiring and firing people, uh, finding out when the system is sick and figuring out exactly what the pinpoint is, how to fix it, who's in charge when the due date, I mean, the operations is not her, she didn't like it, you know? And then when it comes to acquisitions and deal hunting, again, she doesn't like it. So she's like, I'm just gonna stick with what I'm good at, what I like. And as a team, say if there's three or four of us, like all of our job is to pitch in with the fundraising. And honestly, if you have team members that don't pitch in, you probably shouldn't be doing a deal with them. But uh, the thing that works right now, because obviously COVID has made us have to pivot on the way that we normally raise money or the way that we make relationships. So when you have a 506, which is a um, regulation D exemption under um, SEC's securities law uh, title, I just did a presentation on this yesterday. I'm like, it's like title... Title One, I think, but it's an exemption, meaning we don't have to go through full registration for the SEC. But to do that, you have to have a certain type of investor that qualifies to do these deals. So they have to be accredited or sophisticated. So part of the process is kind of narrowing down who are we talking to and who are we raising money from. So um, normally you would do that by, you know, kind of referrals, like friends of yours that have raised money. Who, who do you like to work with? Who does who likes to make returns? Like there's some people that passively invest as a, as a living. I got friends that have invested like 15 deals. They don't have a job. All they do is just take job money from an old job and then recycle it and make returns and then recycle it and infinite return. But anyway, um, so what, what her and I have been doing, like I, I, over the lockdown said, okay, well, we have to figure out a way to qualify people, but I want it automated where you're doing it in my sleep. Like I want people coming into my email saying, okay, I'm qualified as a, as a accredited or sophisticated investor. I want to be on the list for the next deal because um, part of it is that you have to have a ex substantive relationship before you're under contract on the deal that they invest in. So um, basically figuring out a way that it kind of self runs itself. I figured that out. However, it only works really well when I have just done some kind of educational series or a webinar or something like that. And then people obviously see my link at the end and they, they click on it or my existing database of people. Um, or, for example, I have a couple speaking engagements coming up, uh, one with Marcus and Millichap in October, so there'll probably be like 600 to 2,000 people that I get to speak in front of, and so if they like the way that I do things, the way that I bring women into multifamily, that's that's our niche and our, our uh, unique thing that we do, uh, then they'll have an opportunity to get my contact information and, and connect and get on that list. But what, what Sarah does kind of takes it another, another level, and she's like, it is kind of labor-intensive. And I, you know, she may, we're, we're kind of thinking like, well, why don't you just record it? But sometimes it's, it's a personalized plan. So what she does is she, she says, I offer a four-prong approach to a personalized wealth building plan. Um, and she speaks on webinars and has her own podcast and things. And so people get exposure to her that, that way. And then they'll engage her afterwards. And uh, the plan basically is going through somebody's assets that they have. You know, do you have um, current active IRAs or 401ks? Do you have old IRAs or 401ks? Do you have a single family home that you own, that you have a mortgage on that you live in? Um, do you have properties, like I have a girlfriend that has properties paid off in cash. So there's a ton of locked equity in there that she can pull out and use. Um, so many different investment vehicles or whatnot um, that you can use to invest in these deals. And then also comparing, so what she does on a Zoom 
she'll pop up the whiteboard. And if you have a current investment, like a single family home, for example, or something, she's like, do you actually know what your return on your investment is, what your cash on cash return is, what your annualized return is? And she's like, 99% of people don't know. So she'll do a visual where she's like, tell me what your actual, because it's real to the person, tell me what your actual purchase price is, loan to value ratio, et cetera. And then we'll, we'll do it. She's like, most of the time people are making like, three to maybe 5% return on a single family that they're having to actively do all the work for being called for toilets and tenants. You know, it's a pain in the butt versus, you know, she'll compare then what our typical multifamily deal that we do. So for example, usually it's about on the low end, 20% annualized return. So it beats the crap out of a single family and you're not having to actually do any work. You're just getting mailbox money. So it makes a lot of sense to people. And again, using an example of something they're already dealing with in reality they're like, oh, wow, it's really clear, you know, what I'm doing. And so then you have a couple options after that. Um, you know, maybe if you don't have a large account that like I've done some note investing where you can get in at like 5,000, 10,000, a smaller amount and same make passive income um, or, you know, a multifamily deal where maybe you could sell off some of your single families um, or take equity out and roll it into a multifamily. So um, that works really well for her. She's like people really, uh, and then again, once they're done with their call, they have to fill out a questionnaire that because the individuals have to self-certify that they're accredited or sophisticated. And uh, the, the sheet tells you like what the definition of each is. And so if they certify and then we have a copy of it, we now have like a an existing relationship that we have a date timestamp on. Plus we have their questionnaire so we can kind of see in our database, like who all is accredited, who's sophisticated, who would qualify for what deal. Uh, and then you've already had the conversation where they're really excited and they want to place capital. And so we'll get like a soft commit from that, um, that meeting. And then I have, I have a spreadsheet of, of all those people. And then when we're raising money, if it's a 506B, it's friends and family. Um, or if it's 506C, then the individual has to be accredited. And then we have, like I said, a list of who's all accredited. So you would, you would do an email blast out on an offering to all those people first. Um, and then by the way, as of the 26th of August, uh, the accredited definition is expanding to a lot more uh, groups to individuals that have like series six, um, they're financial planners that are in good standing. Uh, I just did a presentation on that. So it's becoming more inclusive. So more people can invest in these, um, these assets that don't disappear. It's, it's not legalized gambling. You know what I mean? It's something that if you're building future wealth, uh, you actually get appreciation and cash flow out of apartments. Just plug for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's definitely a great thing. You know, where there's a lot of people in during these times, there's a lot of uncertainty about the jobs. I mean, about the entire future. It's a good thing to know that some of the people, you know, as the SEC, as you mentioned, expanding that regulation, and it will help a lot of people to invest passively in those type of deals, and it will provide them, you know, additional source of income, which is a good thing. Uh, one question that I wanted to ask you, what is like a rule of thumb that you use, you know, for those soft commitments? What do you mean? Like how many people should, uh, you know, like say, like, let's say if you have a raise of capital, which is like $3 million, you need that. Let's say it's a small, like multifamily deal. So how many people should, uh, and let's say per person, as you know, it's like 50K or 100K. So how many people you should have, uh, like, soft, do those soft commitments? Is it like, you know, if it's uh, if it's 100K, so is it going to be like 30 people you need for that? So is that what you should have? Or should, should you have more people to kind of soft commit? So like, what, what is the number for that kind of 3 million people, uh, 3 million, um, you know, raise? It depends on what the buy-in minimum is and how many units they're buying, but um, I guess it really, for me in my head, what I do is I apply the sales rule where it's, um, you'll probably close one in 10. 
uh, in reality, when you look at the people that have engaged in wanting to invest and then to getting them to investing, because I track this stuff, there's been one person that didn't perform. And so we no longer talk to them because there's no reason to. Uh, another person decreased their investment, which wasn't a happy situation because I feel if I keep my word, others people should as well. Um, but other than that, everybody else that has engaged me to invest in an investment that they were interested in has invested. So I don't know what close rate that is, but really freaking high. Uh, but in my head, I assume it's 10%. So therefore I would get, you know, I guess 10 times the amount of commits, uh, or soft commits if possible. And then again, it creates that, um, fear of missing out because I'm like, okay, there's a wait, like right now on this deal, I have a wait list of people that have been interested, but we can't publish the offering. We can't publish the numbers until one due diligence is done. And we've checked that all of our assumptions meet what we thought it was going to. So therefore their return projections are reasonable. Um, and then also to make sure that we have our filing with the SEC done, and then I can actually, you know, give them an offering. So um, yeah, I, I guess. Yeah. So I think the waiting list right now yeah. So, nice. so the the thing, like I want to mention, uh, a great part that you said, like you have a four uh, four partners in your team, and again, everybody's pitching in with their part when it comes to raising capital. And again, your partner who who is in France, she's doing it virtually, you know, leveraging the social media, the podcast, and you you're going on on you know uh, like physical you know places, like you you mentioned Merc, uh, you know um, Marcus and Millichap event, which is going to be 600 people in in place. So that's going to give you a tremendous amount of leverage. Are, are you going to be talking as a broker at that point or are you going to be talking about the, what's happening in texas multifamily uh you mean at the speaking engagements yeah. coming up you know usually what i talk about uh has nothing to do with data because people are just beat to death with that crap all day long you know obviously we all get reports from the lenders we get reports so again my niche and my um, differentiating activities are getting more women into multifamily investing and so uh, part of it will be a little bit about um you know what makes us different but educating individuals um there's some several books i always recommend but on why women and our communication is a little bit different and how um, we take away our own power by a few things that are subconscious we don't know we're doing and kind of how i've been able to utilize those, uh, like turning those tactics and stop doing those things to be able to gain power in my industry, you know, without having to be an autocratic leader and really tough and, and try to be like a man. No, not at all, you know, um, and then be able to have success and be respected um, in your industry. There's no, yeah. So kind of going through those things is really important because I think men hearing that too, maybe we'll understand a little bit better just some of the stuff that's going on in our head that just through years and years of time is just kind of subconscious and, and all of us are affected by those subconscious behaviors differently but you have to unlearn them to have a lot of success so uh, that's kind of part of my stuff that I talk about and sometimes it's different um, depending on what the conference is about um, if it's like this one in Marcus Millichap is a Southeastern conference. So I will talk about a couple of deals that we have in that area um, and what we're looking for, just so that again, when you're putting it out there, it'll come to you. Uh, and then I've got a speaking engagement at IMN, which is Information Management Network. Um, all, let's see, in November and then also January. And again, one is in the West Coast. So I love these webinars because like you can attract a ton of people and then you can talk about things in other states um, without actually physically having to be there. So um, yeah, the, the, the topic varies based on what their conference is about too. So I kind of have to flex a little bit with, with what they need.
Got it, got it. And I love the fact which you mentioned, you know, just give uh, more information to the to the ladies and again to ladies who are watching, uh, you know, like you're part of the Dallas Invest Her Network, which is a big, great network. And I spoke with a few women who are part of the network and I definitely encourage everybody, everybody, every lady and, you know, women who's watching this to, to get involved with the with the group, which is a phenomenal uh, place to be in. But one of the whys is kind of, you mentioned that you want to change the face of multifamily. So can you like expand on that? What do you mean by, by saying change the face? So right now um, in multifamily, it's dudes. Like I would say if you're in a I room of multifamily yeah. people, it's probably three women or something. And then I, I constantly, not anymore because people kind of know me a little bit better now, but constantly in the beginning it was, so are you the broker? Are you the insurance agent? Are you the, like, no, I'm the buyer, you know? And I get it, I'm female, I get it, I'm young, whatever. But that, that those things, I don't let stop me. Sometimes they do, but I have people that I talk to when that little guy in my head is, is giving me that self-doubt to, you know what, no. Like that's, that's put upon you by other people's uh, words or other people's thoughts, those are not your thoughts, you know? So um, yeah, it's just, there's not enough women in my industry and I want it to be common practice that for example, on this next deal we have uh, right now, well, it'll, that's what it will end up being. There's, there's three of us partners and we're all women. That's what I want on all of my deals moving forward. And if I could have my way, I'd have all the limited partners be females as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I can't, um, Look, just one thing that I wanted to mention, you, you know, I do understand there's a lot of guys in, in the business and multifamily syndication, but when you're going to come, come across those women, and I came across and I had the woman on, on your show, on my show, and probably you're familiar, would be familiar with some of the names, but when, sure. you, come, when you come across those women, they're doing like 20 times better than some, some men in the same business. There's a, there's yeah. a few, there's a, you know, a few less, but they're doing far more better than, than some of the guys. It, it probably took them longer to get that ramp up going because I think a lot of the times people want it like like for my apartment queen thing I can't tell you how many 60 some odd year old guys that I meet with that are selling me a property and I have to take my buddy with me who's in the in his 60s to make them feel confident and comfortable that okay you know there's money somewhere you know so that they, they kind of just that that goes away out of their head but yeah I mean there, there just needs to be more of us to be, to be the norm, you know? And they, a lot of the times when um, women are the token woman in the room, for example, um, I've seen this happen to me. You're with someone else who's a principal, someone else who's a broker, et cetera. And they want to talk about something that's, you know, controversial or something that has to do with, with business or something. And especially when they don't know you well, they all kind of look at you at the table and they're kind of like, Oh, let's not talk about business. I go, ah, let's talk about business because what you're cutting off from me is our, now we can't have the bond of friendship. Now I can't learn from you, whatever it is that you're going through. I don't want to, you know, repeat your mistakes. Um, and so long story short, like having a token person, you know, being the only one in, in the area usually pulls back the amount of uh, learning and then also the amount of confidence that person has to talk about their differing uh, opinions or differing um perspective their lens you know so having more women involved with each other really helps us to excel and exceed um faster and then women are always shown and proven over time to be better invest invest hers um because usually we're more risk averse so mm, here you go here you go and I, and again like there's women in uh business industry there's a lot of them who are doing phenomenal phenomenal things and i think uh the the fed the, the fed of the chair is 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 a woman currently right she's uh what was her name Janet Janet uh, 
Aileen, I think Aileen something something in it, right? So she, I mean, there's so many ladies in in uh, business industries, you know, real estate investing, financial industries, hedge funds. I mean, it, all over the place, you know, creating billion dollar businesses. So there's like in my eyes, there is no difference. You're a man, you're women, you're like it doesn't matter like how great you are as a business person. That that's all that matters. You know, can you? Yeah. How pro professional are you? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So it doesn't matter. The gender is 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 not an issue. Well, at least in my head. But uh, the, the thing that I wanted to ask you, because, again, you're meeting all these great women, you know, women, guys, people, and you, you, you talking again and, you know, meetups, events, podcasts like this one. And like, what is the one thing that you want always people to kind of to remember about you? Like, what is the legacy behind building all this business? The legacy, or I guess you would say, so we have our mission, vision, values. So you, you, all, you all know the vision of creating 1 billion female investors in the next 10 years. Uh, mission, I guess, is a large part of kind of, I think, what you're asking. And so our mission, I'm not going to put it in exact verbatim words, what it is, but it's it's what I live every day. I want to stop toxic codependency. Um, that is a result of um, these ideas that we have because of our codependency on other things or other people. Codependency is a hard thing to explain, but basically if you could remove whatever that is from your life and feel like you couldn't function, that's a codependency. So um, a certain person that you're dating, making you feel like you have to live in a certain place or, you know, an example for me, you know, is going to having to deal with abuse for a long time and only knowing that is your norm, like you don't know any different. Um, but being able for me to get out of that codependency happened from creating uh, passive cash flow in real estate and then realizing, you know what, I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to wear that or live here or, or do whatever it is. I need to get to my own place and get my own thoughts straight, figure out who I am, get myself uh, confident in, in who I am and what I want. And then uh, I want that for more people, a, a billion more people. That's a that's a good that's a good goal to have, you know, billion people. That that's something that's something that you're looking forward to. I mean, it's a big enough for you to kind of, you know, keep going. So yeah, that's awesome. That's an exciting goal. So you know, I really appreciate you today for being on the show. I mean, uh, this this person is definitely a go giver, and I do recommend you, girls, guys, everybody who is watching, to get in contact with her and talk about real estate because the as as you mentioned before, the level of professional professionalism that I'm getting and the people that are getting is is definitely up here or maybe it's here, right? Well, it's the, the high. It's, is so important, yeah. It's definitely high. So you're you're definitely a, a great business person, you know, for people to get in contact with you, talk about real estate strategies, tips, passive investing, so all of that great stuff. Life. So I, yeah. so I definitely yeah. encourage you to get in contact with Kaylee and and talk these things. So again, I appreciate you for being on a, on, on the show today. Good times, uh, you know, great times to get to know you, your story, and you know the impact that you're looking to uh, to hit. I mean, one billion people. That's uh, again, I love that. So just one thing that I wanted to ask you, uh, if you can share guys and girls this episode with a person of yours who you always knew kind of were interested into real estate investing, but always lacks the knowledge, the inspiration. So this is episode is going to give you all those pieces that were missing for that person. So make sure to do that. Again, Kaylee, I appreciate you for being today on episode. And as always, I'm going to see you on the next show. Thanks for watching. Got it. Thank you.